When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, how's it going? This is Matt here from Silver Fortune. So I have a guest on the channel today, Andre from his channel, One Minute Economics. So I talk a lot about on my channel about not only getting your information and your information from a variety of sources, but also the importance of actually becoming educated on topics like economics. His channel is a great source for that. So at the end of this video, I highly suggest you all head over there and subscribe. Or if you're on a browser, open up another tab and subscribe right now. There's a link below in the description. Um, but I would like to introduce Andre now. So Andre, how are you doing tonight? Doing great. Thank you very much for having me. And thank you guys for tuning in. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so real quick, I think a, a good place to start would be to just give everybody a little bit of background on, on yourself and why you're so interested in economics. Well, to me, economics has always been a labor of love. Like growing up in Eastern Europe, uh, I ended up embracing this internet thing, of course, because I didn't have that many offline opportunities at my disposal. So of course, I started some online projects. I uh, One thing led to another. They were doing great. I got accepted at university. Everything was going fine until, of course, as happens frequently, life got in the way. My mom got sick. I had to take her to seek treatment in another country. And as you guys know, this tends to put a big burden on your finances. And yeah, essentially, I was forced to start from scratch again. This happened while uh, the Great Recession was in full swing. So not only was it that, but I also had to deal with the effects of the Great Recession on my businesses. And I think this is actually one of my main drivers when it comes to economics. Like I want as many people as possible to have a better life than the one I had. So essentially what I did is I put everything on hold, I rebuilt my businesses, and only when I was able to do so from a position of financial security that I start studying economics again, going after my bachelor's, my master's, my PhD. So essentially I've always approached economics as someone who treats it as a labor of love. And that pretty much led to me deciding to start One Minute Economics. Too much to my surprise, the channel gained traction. People love my work. They told me, hey, you should make a video about this. You should make a video about that. And I did. And it's just crazy for me to think about it that now my videos are all over the place. Now you have universities, more and more universities from all over the world who use my work. My animations have even appeared on television in various countries. And, you know, it's that's the Internet for you. You know, it, it's so crazy that something you just start as a hobby can end up having a life of its own. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it, I, 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 honest, I'll be honest, I'd never heard of your channel before you contacted me. And, and I checked, I've seen videos, probably your videos in the past, you know, out there before, um, you know, I quickly subscribed. And the great thing about your, your videos and, and your channel is that, you know, my subscribers know that I can be long winded. And, and that's an understatement. Okay. You know, I have a decent handle on, on plenty of basic economic ideas, but my ability to, to relay that information in 60 seconds very limited. So I very much appreciate that on your channel. Um, again, I can't 
recommend it highly enough. But but jumping into things, you know, I want to get your thoughts on the global economy because you know just to give give my viewers a little bit of context here. You you sent me an email to to kind of contact me, set up this collaboration, and in that email you you put a, a sentence in here, quote, "In my opinion, and this is the opinion of a pretty balanced economist, Horrific things are coming, and the worst part is that the average person will most likely, most likely get slaughtered due to a complete lack of basic financial preparedness. So could you expand on that for me? You know, what are the, the let's say, top three threats to the global economy? Why do you think uh, these so, so-called, quote, you know, horrific things are coming? Well, first of all, from the perspective, Perspective of exactly a pretty balanced economist. I like to tell to people, you know, that that when someone who kind of made a name for himself for his balanced views, like myself, when that someone starts getting worried, then maybe it makes sense to at least pay attention. And in my book, I refer to various pockets of anomaly that I've identified. And in the end. I'm a pretty hands-on economist. Like, not only do I study things, I also trade the markets. I'm active in many industries. So I do put a good balance between, uh, if you will, book smarts and street smarts on the table. And what worries me, first of all, one, uh, is not necessarily the fact that the economy is going to crash. Because, of course, we do have the business cycle. But as someone who even trades and is exposed to volatility quite a bit, I'm not exactly the type of person who's easily spooked by something like the business cycle. So I am not afraid that the stock market is going to crash by, let's say, 60%. No, I'm afraid about what happens next. Or more specifically, I am scared of a major narrative change. Because, of course, as you guys know, the narrative so far has been, if you take two steps back to the dot-com bubble, it has been... Don't worry, central banks and governments have it all under control whenever something collapses. So, of course, we had the dot-com bubble that collapsed, everyone's panicking, but hey, don't worry. Central banks and governments are here to save the day. And they did so by lowering interest rates, as many of you know, from 6.5% to 1%, and quote-unquote, the day was saved. But, yeah... This came at a price, an even bigger bubble was inflated. When that popped, once again, central banks and governments are here to save the day, only this time a bigger dose of stimulus was needed. So essentially what I'm afraid of is that moment when this narrative changes, or in other words, of course, we're going to have another crash, and of course people are going to panic, and of course central banks and governments will try to do more of the same because... Frankly, if you're in charge of a government or a central bank, the last thing in this world that you want is to be that guy, the guy under whom it all comes crashing down. So you have every incentive in the world to want to kick the can down the road for another business cycle. So there's little doubt in my mind that governments and central banks will be trying more of the same. Or in other words, hey, don't worry, we're going to stimulate the economy. We lowered interest rates to 1% after the dot-com bubble. Then we had to lower them to zero and pump up to a trillion per year into the economy after the Great Recession, and maybe this time, hey, we'll lower interest rates to negative 1% and pump 4 trillion per year into the economy and see what happens. The problem is that eventually the market is going to say no, and that no will, of course, lead to the type of big reset scenario that that has occurred throughout history many times. And 
Unfortunately, that big reset will inevitably lead to a major transfer of wealth, and once again, as history tells us, the average person tends to be on the losing end of that. So there's one. Then there's two, the fact that, of course, we have geopolitical threats all around us, and right now, we are witnessing the public beginning of arguably, not arguably, of the largest trade war in recorded history, that between China and the United States. These are also trend, the geopolitical ones, that need to be taken into consideration, and there are plenty of anom- pockets of anomaly there as well. And finally, three, there's also the cyclical dimension, like only once has it happened that more time passed between recessions than right now. And if another year goes by without us having a recession, it would be a record. So even from a cyclical perspective, we are due or even overdue a recession. And the bottom line is that there are just so many perfectly rational reasons, one, to pay attention to these things, and two, to pay attention to them today, that I do believe uh, this... This is this is what drives me and my effort to be all over YouTube, to be all over the podcast scene as well, and generate awareness from my work. Because whenever we have perfect storm type situations like this one, I just know that historically speaking, the average person is going to be on the losing end. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a great way of putting it. So you brought up a term there that that is is probably unique to you: uh, pockets of anomalies. So so what are the big anomalies or anomaly that you kind of see driving this this economy into the ground eventually the global economy i use the i use the term anomaly and also i back up what i say with many historic case studies starting with the tulip mania the first recorded asset bubble and moving on to you know anything from recent case studies like the dot-com bubble and the great recession to case studies nobody aside from myself studied like the short domain mania of 2015 to 2016. And I, I, I have this <laughs> huge variety. So as to help people understand that, yeah, okay, maybe history does not repeat itself, but it does rhyme. And if we draw the proper parallels, if we kind of find the common denominators that are easy to identify time and time again, we will notice that, yeah, the anomalies have been all around us. Anomalies are all around us right now. And essentially, it's this firm grasp on economic history, and and that's what I try to provide in my book as well, this firm grasp on economic history is going to essentially enable you to keep track of current events and also filter them from the perspective of someone who knows his economic history. So you're not going to be watching the news like you'd be watching a movie. You're going to be watching the news and immediately say, wait a second, this specific event has happened on that specific occasion, and here's what it led to. Once, so essentially, it's, it's this perspective that's going to enable you to essentially see things in a big picture way. And when it comes to today, of course, whether we're talking about an economy that has essentially been zombified, if you will, by having it so dependent on cheap money on the one hand, and even downright injections of capital on the other, like from 1913 to 20, uh, 2007 to 2008, so in almost 100 years of central banking in the United States, the monetary base had reached $850 billion. At the height of QE, with $85 billion monthly being pumped into the system, we're talking about $1 trillion per year. So 
more in one year essentially than had existed after 100 years of central banking. And this, this is just ex one example of something one can easily consider an anomaly when looking at it through a clear mind, but nowadays we just consider it status quo. And the same way, as I try to identify in, in my book, these things are all around us, and even individually, each one should be a major cause for concern, especially since if you dig deep enough, you're going to find parallels in history when it comes to each. But if we take them collectively, and this is why kind of like the cover of my book is this person sitting in a boat made of essentially a dollar bill looking sailing the ocean and looking towards storm clouds that are gathering on the horizon. I think it's perfectly descriptive for our situation right now because we're looking at the horizon, we're looking at the many storm clouds that are gathering. Again, even individually, each cloud provides more than enough reasons to be worried, but collectively, it tends to give me goosebumps when I think about the perfect storm situation that is bound to happen in my opinion, sooner rather than later. Yeah, yeah. So, so I want to actually pick apart something you said there. You're talking about uh, QE and 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 the Federal Reserve specifically. Obviously, it was far more than just the Fed. It was the the Bank of Japan, um, the the European Central Bank, the Bank of England, and many other central banks that that pumped all this uh, money into into the system, into the economy. Um, you're talking about how the Fed. You and I would both agree that I mean the, the Great Recession. Um, their response to it, it was them kicking the can down the road. And one could say that in some ways they somewhat sex successfully did that. Not to say, if anything, I think it created, you know, as you said, a larger bubble, more systemic issues. Um, but they've been doing the opposite lately. Uh, they, they've been doing, you know, quantitative tightening. They've been uh, more or less, you know, removing that money from the system. Currently, it's at uh, 40 or $50 billion a month which isn't quite the same pace as, as, as their actual QE, um, but it's, you know, in theory would have the opposite effect. So, so could you speak to that a little bit as well as other central banks, which have not been as willing to tighten their policy, uh, banks like, like the European Central Bank and, and the Bank of Japan? As you correctly pointed out, um, when it comes to all of these houses of cards, that of the United States is actually in better shape. If we talk, if we look at the European Union or Japan, where rates all, already ended up going into negative territory, then yeah. But what we have to do is see things in perspective. Like after the dot-com bubble and until the Great Recession, interest rates at least got a chance to normalize in that they went up from that 1% I've mentioned, not back to 6.5%, which were the level they were at before, but at least to 5.25%. So something decent, certainly decent enough uh, to give uh, central banks a bit of a cushion in that respect. However, nowadays, and as I've mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, here we are over 10 years into this thing, and just look at interest rates in the United States. The same way, look at what's happening in the European Union and Japan, where things are considerably worse. And that's kind of the thing, because we have, we have this uh, binary-type observation to make. On the one hand, we are many years into this. In fact, if another year goes by, it's going to be a record as to how much time passed between recessions. And interest rates are no near, quote-unquote, at normal levels, so that's one. And on the other hand, 
we have every reason in this world to believe that should there be a crash again, and of course there will be, um, the economy will demand more stimulus. So even if interest rates do climb back up more, then, of course, much like a drug addict that got hooked on this on, on, on this stimulus, the economy is going to demand more anyway. So for these two reasons, the fact that interest rates are in awful shape so many years into this, and the fact that the economy is likely to demand a bigger dose of stimulus, for these two combined reasons, I do believe... Uh, I do believe we're going to be in for a bumpy ride. Can I be 100% certain that they will not be able to kick the can down the road for another business cycle? No, I cannot because, you know, there's a popular saying among traders, uh, the market can remain irrational longer than you can remain solvent. And the same way, if you remember, uh, a lot of people uh, were so convinced that... Uh, Japan is going to go down in flames and that it's a good idea to bet against the yen, to bet against Japanese government bonds, because it, it all seems so logical given how aggressive Japan was in terms of, of monetary policy. And nowadays they call that trade the widowmaker because so many people lost so much money on that trade despite entering it for all the right logical reasons that, yeah, it got a bit of a reputation. So I do have this reserve. But at the same time, if we just look at the facts, it is quite impossible for things to move beyond this, especially since, as I mentioned in my YouTube channel, and as many of you know, the banking system, it's a fractional reserve system. Or in other words, I cannot think of one bank that would be able to survive if, let's say, three out of 10 depositors want their money back. It's just not going to happen. So yeah, technically, you can keep lowering interest rates and going deeper and deeper into negative territory. But if you have them at zero, then maybe most people are going to be too lazy to do something about it. If they're at negative 0.5%, then maybe 7% of depositors, random example, are going to say, yeah, you know what, I'm not going to pay you to hold my money, I'm going to take my money out. If you lower them to negative 1%, then maybe, I don't know, maybe 12% of the people are going to do this, and you start to have a problem. So you can say, yeah, if necessary, I can lower them to negative 2%. But what if you do it, and instead of 12%, you have 27% uh, of depositors who say, wait a second, there's no way I'm giving you that much money each year just for the privilege of you being my bank. So even when it, many economists do make the mistake of believing that you know this is like a bottomless pit of monetary options like you can just lower interest rates forever you can just pump more and more money into the system and it's going to be great except not really not really as of a certain point no matter how irrational things can get in the market as of a certain point there will be moments of lucidity when the market is going to say wait a second no too much is too much and i no longer have confidence in your ability to fix this mess. And it's that kind of a narrative change that I'm personally afraid of. Yeah, that's a, that's a great ex explanation of, of how these things, you know, they don't always play out as we expect. You know, sometimes people, investors, humans, it's just part of human nature. When we see a bubble, we expect that now that we've, now that we personally have seen the bubble, it's, it's bound to pop, you know, same thing goes for, Hey, uh, I see a stock that I think is overvalued. I'm going to short it. Well, that doesn't mean it has to go down immediately. But, you know, over long term, you know, fundamentals, 
economic fundamentals or stock price fundamentals, whatever, they do win out. I mean, I, it reminds me of this uh, this political movement. Not it's kind of fizzled out. It's 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 changed shape since uh, you know when it was invented. I think it was back in the eighties or nineties um, here in the United States. It's it was an acronym, um, Tonstoffel, uh, and basically what it stood for is there ain't no such thing as a free lunch. Basically, the idea of it is is that you know these uh, whether it be government spending, which was I think what it was more geared towards back then. This idea of of mass amounts of government spending on Medicare on Medicaid, on Social Security, on um, defense or, or whatever, um, you, you can spend that money now and you can get a benefit from that. You can get a strong def, uh, you know, national defense. You can get a strong you know, so-called social net or whatever for you know, welfare, whatever you want to call it um, for the time being. But there's a price to pay for that. And the same thing goes for, for monetary policy. Just like with fiscal policy, we're seeing these things catch up in terms of, of uh, ever-increasing uh, sovereign debts. Same thing goes for 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 monetary policy. Um, the the repercussions of of how central banks responded to the Great Recession, um, we've seen them to some extent in, in in these massive bubbles. Some people might see those bubbles and say there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but I, I I would agree that that the ultimate I guess uh, culmination of consequences I guess of of those actions are still ahead of us. Um, so so I had one more question here, or I guess I have a couple more questions here. Um, so, so you're talking about where the global economy is is heading because of reason A, B, and C, and, and whatever. Um, but you know, this is a question I know many people have on their minds, especially you know with with my viewer base being uh, averse to to stocks and and many other traditional investment uh, assets. What assets make sense to you? You know, based on where we are in this business cycle, regardless of if it's an exceptional cycle or not, um, how equities and, and bonds are, are value right now, the, the, stat, the status of uh, uh, pension funds around the world, especially here in the United States. What makes sense to you? What will perform well given our circumstances? Now, as an economist who also trades the market and tries to be as hands-on as possible as well, I can say there are a few assets out there about which I can say I would never touch them. No. The only, my main MO, personally, is that I don't mind taking on risk, but I want to be properly rewarded for that risk. So when I look at bonds, I have nothing against the idea of investing in bonds, but by taking a close look and seeing how poorly I am rewarded com compared to the risk I'm taking on. And in my book, I do explain why, historically speaking, of course, uh, bonds aren't nearly as safe as people perceive them as being. So for this reason, obviously, I decide that at this point in time, there's no way I'm going to allocate money in that direction. The same principle is valid when it comes to absolutely all asset classes. So... What I tell to people and what my strategy is that I recommend in the book is, look, first of all, there's no such thing as just one strategy that I recommend. Because if you live in Egypt and are only a regime change away from having your real estate confiscated, I'm obviously going to be uh, less willing to recommend that asset class. But what I do in, the, in, in my book is tell people, look, I will guide you through all of these assets one at a time. From, of course, stocks, precious metals, real estate, to exotic ones like even domain names, cryptocurrencies, peer-to-peer uh, -peer lending. And I'm going to help you figure out for yourself 
what assets you need to have exposure to. You're going to know exactly, I want this, I want that, I want this for these reasons, I want that for these reasons. And you're going to have these things deeply ingrained into your subconscious. And before you know it, by internalizing a few core principles, you're always going to be on a shopping spree. You're going to know, hey, these are the assets I have exposure to right now, and these are the assets I want to have more exposure to or I want to have ex eventually exposure to. So essentially, it's this... It's this solid foundation that's going to enable you to be lucid when people are irrational. Like, again, there are lots of asset classes out there which deserve your attention. Like, I have made quite a bit of money uh, um, engaging in a long position on Bitcoin even. Why? Because I have spotted an asymmetrical trading opportunity. Like, uh, I... I, I it entered my long at just a pinch under 6,000 as an average between two orders, and I'm still riding that position as we speak. So I did this because I felt I was properly rewarded for the risk I was taking on. Everyone was pessimistic. You even had tutorials on CNBC and mainstream television on how to short Bitcoin. So to me, it seemed, wait a second, maybe this is a decent buying opportunity, and it proved to be a decent buying opportunity. The same way, of course... The principle is valid when it comes to pretty much all asset classes. And what I try to tell people is that, of course, even if you have a certain affinity towards this asset or another, it makes sense to kind of spread your risk. Because the second part of my book is, okay, the first part is all about enabling you to maximize the likelihood that you're going to spot the next financial crisis as early on as possible, of course. The second part of my book basically involves me telling people that, wait a second, even someone like myself who thinks about these things day in and day out, I can still be taken by surprise by what's going to happen. And therefore, it makes just as much sense to spend, a bunch of t to spend as much time and energy becoming more financially resilient in general, which is what I try to teach people. I, I'm going to try them to put together a balanced portfolio. I'm going to deconstruct a few myths, like, for example... Precious metals and cryptocurrencies are arch enemies. They're not. I believe there's adequate, you know, there's a role for them in absolutely each and every portfolio. Crypto, of course, only if you're tech savvy enough to kind of pull it off. But I do try to make it clear to people that by being properly diversified, like there's no way I would touch bonds right now, even for the sake of being diversified. Because again, I'm not rewarded for my risk properly. But you're going to eventually make it a goal to have exposure to as many assets as possible. And this is what I kind of, uh, I'm aiming to do with my book. Help people have the proper historic context, help people have the proper mindset they need to pull it off. And essentially, it's not my goal to ascend to make readers dependent on my predictions or on this or that strategy that I spoon feed them. Instead, I'm going to help them figure out for themselves what exactly the assets are that someone in their situation should want to have exposure to. And I, I will help them basically become independent economic thinkers, make their own decisions, build their own portfolio. They don't necessarily need to have exposure to all of these assets right away. But again, once you internalize a few core principles, you're always going to be on a shopping spree. And when, when markets collapse and people are bottom selling their portfolios and panicking left and right, it's this solid foundation of knowledge that's going to give you clarity. And it's that clarity that's going to enable you to be lucid when people 
act in an irrational way. And that's kind of my value proposition when it comes to the idea of building your portfolio in a way that's, that makes you as resilient as possible. So I do want to get to, to your book and your channel because you have some things to say there for, for my viewers uh, here in a second here. But I do want to take a second to talk about the alternative. We, we know that there are so many individuals who are very passive with their investments. And I'm not talking um, pe- people that are just throwing $10,000 into stocks and just watching it grow or, or, or decline or whatever. I'm talking about people who are very passive with their with their nest egg, with their retirement. Um, people that throw their money into a 401k, an IRA. Uh, maybe they are, are plan on, on relying on a pension in, in the future. Um, I don't want to spread fear, but I do want to spread a healthy awareness of, about some of these very topics that we're talking about here. What is the alternative? You know, what what will happen to, to the 50%, 75%, 90% of people who hear this message and, and ignore it or don't hear this message at all and enter into this collapse in a, in a very poor, in a very exposed position? One of my main driving forces when it comes to, you know, dedicating so much time and energy to my books, to my YouTube channel is precisely that. I want to explain to people that economics is all around us and even not making an economic decision involves making the decision of not making a decision and there are going to be consequences because of course once disaster strikes it's not like someone's going to knock on your door and say hey I'm thinking about crashing the economy is it convenient if I do it now or should I return in six months when you have more time to prepare like it it would be great if things would happen that way but they don't. And unfortunately, people are not going to be able to plead ignorance. Or in other words, when things happen, they're going to happen. And the average person, once again, historically speaking, I'm sorry to say, is going to be on the losing end of this, which is why, you know, in, in the many collaborations I've shot to promote the book, I was on just, you know, a ton of channels of podcasts and so on. And the common denominator has always been this, you know, uh, you guys who are listening, you actually are, you know, a type of audience that's far more receptive to the idea of being prepared than other people. So essentially, of course, I tailor my message based on who's listening. But the common denominator is always this. I tell people, look, if you want to buy The Age of Anomaly, perfect. If you want to subscribe to my YouTube channel, I'd be happy to have you. But even if you don't, and even if your solution does, doesn't include me in any way, the only thing I ask of you is that after watching this collaboration on YouTube, or after listening to this podcast, you take some form of meaningful action. Because you're right, most people are passive. Most people don't, just don't want to bother with these things. And it's a shame because uh, part of my channel, the reason why I've chosen the one-minute format and the reason why my books, even if they're very long, like The Age of Anomaly has 400-plus pages, but they're easy to digest. They're pleasant to read. And I do these things precisely because I don't want to lose people. I want to tell them, wait a second, just give me a bit of your attention and I'm going to help you understand that building a portfolio that enables you to land on your feet under a wide range of circumstances It doesn't involve rocket science. I'm not asking you from now on to think about these things 24-7. I'm simply saying that right now there's an asymmetrically in your favor risk-to-reward ratio associated with listening to what I have to say. Because at the end of the day, at the end of the day, the difference between someone who will be prepared and someone who will, I'm sorry, 
get slaughtered is represented by the fact that the person who is prepared is not necessarily smarter, is not necessarily someone who worked 10 hours per day for this specific goal. No, the person who is prepared simply was wise enough to invest a little bit of time, energy, and money when it made sense compared to the other person. And yeah, I'm spotting the same thing you're spotting. Way too many people are passive. Way too many people uh, treat the investing dimension of their life in pretty much a set-it-and-forget-it way. And these people are unfortunately going to find out that, as, as you've mentioned in the 80s, you know, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Okay, fine. You thought it was a better idea to binge watch Netflix than to think about your portfolio. That's great. That's your prerogative. But eventually, there will be a price to pay for that. There will be a moment when, the per- when that person who did go through the little bit of effort it took to become prepared is going to be rewarded, or at least not punished as hard by the market, whereas everyone else, yeah, not so much. So in short, what you're saying is that the average investor should should treat their investments more like they're you know grilling a a salmon fillet, right? They have it on the grill, something you want to get just right, and not like a meal that they just throw in a crock pot and, and leave it there for for six hours or or you know until retirement, right? It's basically what you're saying. Exactly, exactly. It's not rocket science, but it does need a bit of tender loving care every now and then. Just give your portfolio some attention. Just rebalance every now and then. Just pay some attention to the various markets in a small dose, in a dose that doesn't interfere with your ability to spend time with your family or do your job properly and so on and so forth. So yeah, by all means, it's, it's uh, again, not rocket science. A few simple things like, this simple willingness to give your portfolio some tender loving care every now and then and just don't treat it like you would treat, yeah, crockpot cooking, <laughs> that, that, that would be enough, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, tell my viewers a little bit more about your channel and, and this book that, you've, uh, that you'll be soon releasing and, and where can they find it? Um, they can find uh, The Age of Anomaly pretty much everywhere books are sold. It's on Amazon, it's on Barnes & Noble, it's on iBooks, which is Apple's application, and also on Kobo. So you can just head over there and search for The Age of Anomaly or go to my website, ageofanomaly.com, where you can find all of the links. And also when this show is going to go live, from so from the 6th of August until the 12th, I'm having a huge promo push, and essentially I'm selling The Age of Anomaly for, and I'm, I'm actually not kidding with this, just 99 cents. Because I keep telling people, and I try to put my money where my mouth is, that when it comes to my books, when it comes to my YouTube channel, I'm not in the game of making money. Like, even one successful trading position or one successful project that I'm involved in as an entrepreneur can make me exponentially more money than anything YouTube or writing related. So to me, it's always a labor of love. And the war I'm fighting is a war for people's minds, is a war for people's attention. And I've been involved in enough industries to know that even when you're selling ideas, you're still selling. You still need people's attention. And um, with that mentioned, I... I'm even taking things one step further, and if you head over to my channel, youtube.com forward slash one minute economics, once again this week, I'm actually encouraging people to tell others about the book on Facebook or on Twitter or however they can, and I reward them with the, for this 
with a contest. So essentially, the more you help me spread the word, the more chances at winning you'll have. And of course, many of you might not be into crypto, but I do have some awesome prizes like one Bitcoin, which is a huge prize, is the number one prize of the contest. I have $100 Amazon gift cards, domain plus hosting packages, just a ton of prizes for pretty much anyone. And if you, even if you're not into crypto, you can maybe, if you win the top prize, you can sell half of it, keep the other half or sell 100%. But essentially, why, why I'm doing all of these things, like it doesn't seem all that rational for someone to spend that much time writing a 400 plus page book and then sell it for a buck. But actually, it's the only logical approach I can think of. Because I want to plant seeds in as many minds as possible. And that's not going to happen if people don't find out about me, if people don't find out about my work. So essentially, this entire effort is to get the word out to as many people as possible, to have this huge one-week push where I take over the charts, essentially, on the various platforms I'm selling the book on. And it's my intention that you know the seeds i'm planting today are going to germinate and turn into something awful later uh, something you know <laughs> genuinely awesome later on all right andre well it's been great having you on thank you again for contacting me and and kind of setting up this collaboration it's been great talking to you and i hope that we can kind of work together on this in the future and and you know, do some other interviews in the future. You know, we've had a bit of technical difficulties here, but, but we finally got through this. So thanks for, uh, you know, coming on to my channel and have a great night.